Premier Christian Newscast. Martyrs have accompanied the life of the church in every age and flourish as ripe and excellent fruits of the vineyard of the Lord even today. Martyrs are more numerous in our time than in the first centuries. They are bishops, priests, consecrated men and women, lay people and families who in different countries of the world with the gift of their lives have offered the supreme proof of charity. Those are the words of Pope Francis as he announced earlier this year he was setting up a new commission to record all Christians who have died for their faith since the year 2000. Martyrdom has a long history, stretching all the way back to Stephen in the Book of Acts. But for those of us in the safe West, we rarely think about it happening right now in the third millennium. Yet by some counts, there are more martyrs now than ever before. I'm Tim Wyatt, and in this week's Premier Christian Newscast, inspired by the Pope, we're going to be considering contemporary martyrdom. Where and why are Christians dying today in the world? Are they going unnoticed and unhonoured by the global church? Could the brutal sacrifice of martyrs help push us towards greater unity? How can we be inspired and encouraged by their example? Or is the glorification of martyrs actually something that should have died out many centuries ago? We're going to be joined by advocates for the persecuted church and those who know the stories of modern martyrs up close to consider the Stevens of our own age and what their sacrifice means today. Well, welcome everyone to our podcast recording. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, before we kick off the conversation, it'd be great if you could each briefly introduce yourselves. Um, Andrew, why don't you go first? Hi, Tim. My name's Andrew Boyd. I am a spokesman for Release International, which is a UK-based charity, which is a mission to the persecuted church around the world. And I've had the opportunity of traveling a lot with them, which has been great. Fantastic. Great to have you on the show. Um, Mervyn, who are you? Well, as, as you said, I'm Mervyn. I'm Mervyn Thomas. I'm the founder president of CSW. CSW is a religious freedom advocacy organisation working for freedom of religion or belief for people of all faiths. And uh, I'm also the chair of the UK FORB Forum, FORB standing for freedom of religion or belief. Brilliant. And last but not least, Archbishop Angelos, do you want to introduce yourself? Thank you, Tim. Uh, Angelos, I'm the Coptic Orthodox Archbishop of London and uh, Papal Legate to the United Kingdom. Um, I'm from the Coptic Orthodox Church, so you know, a, a rich history of, of Christian witness from the first century. And uh, through my advocacy work, which I felt called to, I worked quite a lot with you know Andrew and Mervyn, Release CSW, all of our sister organisations. Uh, specifically for this and it's uh, an absolute blessing to be with you. Thank you well I'm really pleased to have such an excellent panel to discuss our topic today which is martyrdom in the 21st century and I, I really came across this idea when I was reading some news earlier in the summer about how Pope Francis has established a new commission at the Vatican which uh, he hopes will um, kind of gather data and information on Christians who have lost their lives for their faith since the year 2000. Um, uh, he, he said this in, in a speech which he gave, which kind of announced the setting up this commission. He said, uh, martyrs have accompanied the life of the church in every age and flourish as ripe and excellent fruits of the vineyard of the Lord. Even today, martyrs are more numerous in our time than in the first centuries. They are bishops, priests, consecrated men and women, lay people and families who in different countries of the world with the gift of their lives have offered the supreme proof of charity. Um, and I was really struck by this. Um, I think first and foremost, because people, Christians today, probably don't think that much about Christians dying for their faith. That seems a thing that, that maybe happened in the first century. You know, we read a lot about it in the Book of Acts uh, and, you know, throughout the, the early years of the Roman Empire and through the Reformation. But but are Christians still actually dying for their faith right here, right now in, in the 21st century? Is that really a thing? Andrew, you're nodding. Oh, absolutely, Tim. It, it sure is. Our friends at Open Doors measure the figures for these, and they would say that more Christians are dying for their faith now than have ever died for their faith in the past. The thing is, where we sit 
you know, in the comfort of the United Kingdom, we're blissfully unaware of much of what goes on, but Christians are being killed for their faith. In fact, Open Doors put the figure of more than 5,000 killed in the past year, and that number is growing year on year. So yes, this is going on, and yes, most certainly we need to be aware of it. Angelos, as you agree, I mean, you you, you have any personal experience of, of, of um, the kind of absence of focus on martyrdom or, or, or its kind of invisibility to Christians here in the West? So being the problematic person I am, I'm just going to flag up two points that we've first started with. Um, Tim, you said that Christians are now um, not really recognizing that martyrdom is still something that happens. Maybe that's Christians in our own Western context, but for Many Christians around the world who have been living in this context, martyrdom has never stopped. Um, it, it, it's been continuing for, for two millennia. And um, Andrew, we're talking about increase. Actually, when you look at the history of Church like the Coptic Orthodox Church, we, we had our worst wave of persecution under the rule of Diocletian, under which uh, under whom we, we, we lost hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And so... Context is really important in terms of how we're looking at, at the church. Um, and, 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 and of course, I'm, I'm with greatest respect to you both. I, I don't mean to criticize, but I'm saying, and, and I consider myself a Brit, I'm here. But also, we have to realize the church is much broader. And from looking from other contexts, the church looks very different and its experience is incredibly different. But having said that, what it does is for churches that have faced this for so many centuries, it builds in a resilience because there is additional grace based on our Lord's promise that we will never be tested beyond our means. And so with every temptation, with every persecution, comes grace and comes strength. And that is something we've been promised. Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm so glad that we've got Archbishop Angelos on on this uh, uh, program because um, he does bring that um, that perspective from the um, uh, from from the Orthodox Church. I remember, and and he was with me at the time many years ago. I met with the late Pope Shenouda uh, the second, and um, I think Pope Shenouda's opening gambit was, you know. We um, we have been persecuted here in um, in uh, Egypt since uh, since Saint Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria uh, by his neck, and um, <clears throat> and and I remember it so well because he also said, and we accept that, and uh, and you know we don't speak out against that, and you know what an incredible response that was i remember also saying to him well you might not speak out against it but i'm certainly prepared to and want to and give my life to doing that which is which is really important but we we are expected um uh to to suffer persecution whether that is death or whether it is less than death um sometimes death might be a um a, a happy release actually from some of the things that um our christian brothers and sisters face but you know i think i i'd like to just put into perspective and, and um you know we've talked some some numbers here this morning andrew and 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 um his eminence but um and I've I've read statistics that said more more people were martyred for their faith in the twentieth century than all the other centuries combined. Well, but we also have to remember that the church is bigger, far bigger than it's ever been before. And so, if we are to expect persecution, and Paul said, um, you know, that um, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. So, you know, as the church grows, we, I guess, can expect the persecution to grow. But it doesn't mean to say we don't speak out against it. Hmm. Tim, can I come in with something on what Merv said? I think it's very true because. One thing I always say, and Mervyn's heard me say this before, is I can accept to suffer persecution and injustice as my cross, 
but I can never accept it for anyone else. Yeah, yeah. And that's the wonderful work that, you know, Andrew, Mervyn, their organizations, you, Tim, by bringing this out into, in, into the public, is martyrdom is a personal choice, but I can't sit, I can't sit on the sideline, watch someone being persecuted, and be quiet and thinking, well, that's their cross, because I think that's a very different context. That's a really interesting point. I think we'll, we'll come a bit later to kind of thinking about maybe almost the theological ramifications of martyrdom and, and some of the tensions between, you know, accepting it while not seeking it. But but just before we before we get there, I, I'd like to just dwell a little bit more on the kind of present present day reality, because I feel like there's a lot of the conversation around persecuted church. People think about countries like China or North Korea, where there are Christians sadly being you know, locked up or or having their churches bulldozed or or kind of being the subject of surveillance and things like that. But we don't often hear about kind of outright executions, murders, deaths. Um, how can we understand the kind of balance of persecution worldwide? Is it only is martyrdom only happening in a few very specific places, or is it commonplace in everywhere where Christians are more generally persecuted? It's not commonplace here, thank God. But it is commonplace in other nations. So if we look at the country currently where more Christians are being killed for their faith than anywhere else, we're talking about Nigeria. And Nigeria is an extraordinary place. And the context of it is not state-sponsored persecution. So I'm very grateful for the perspective that's being given uh, by the Archbishop here. When you look at the scale, it depends on it depends on your breadth of, of perspective here. If we go right back, we, we're talking about almost genocidal persecution at some points. And in the world today, what we're seeing is persecution taking place in a number of distinct contexts. So getting us right up to date, in some areas you have state-sponsored persecution. That's going on to a degree in China, that's happening in Iran, that's happening in North Korea. But in places like Nigeria, where more Christians are being killed because those who are killing them identify them as Christians, we're looking at Boko Haram, who have said, and I'm quoting them directly, kill, kill, kill the Christians. That's their stated aim. They want to turn the whole of Nigeria, the most populous nation in Africa, into an Islamic state. Then you've got ISWAP, uh, Islamic State West Africa province. And added to that now, we've got the menace of Fulani militants. Now, let's not tar that entire group of people uh, with that. The Fulani is a huge tribe, but there is a militant element of that tribe uh, which is wiping out Christians, attempting to displace them, driving them out from their farms, particularly in the north and central Nigeria. So where you've got Christian tribes which identify as Christians, and then you've got groups which identify as Muslims, and where you have this militancy, that's where we see a lawlessness taking place in Nigeria and many people being killed, literally slaughtered by gunmen with Kalashnikovs, they can do precious little about it, and the government is doing precious little to help. Hmm. Is, is martyrdom the right lens, do you think, to understand that kind of violence? Because I understand that clearly Nigerian Christians are being killed because they're identified as Christians. But is this perhaps better understood as a kind of inter-ethnic sectarian conflict over land and resources? I mean, for example, to use a, a more, one closer to home, there were lots of Christians killed during the troubles in northern ireland because they were protestant because they were catholic but we don't traditionally understand them as martyrs for their faith do you think there's there's a danger of muddying the waters by saying everyone who who is killed because they're identified as christian must by definition be a martyr up there with stephen or mark or or peter i think as you rightly say it's more complicated than that but the question really is why are people being killed you need to ask those who are doing the killing Part of the reason for that, and it is part of the reason for that in Nigeria, is that these people are identified by their killers, by their attackers, as Christians. I also think the muddying of the waters is actually going to work in the other direction, because what happens is more often than not, you get this term sectarian violence being thrown up. Sectarian violence may have applied in Northern Ireland because there were two equally matched groups in conflict, in violent conflict. And, you know, that may be a matter of, of perspective from different people. But when you're talking about what's happening in Nigeria, 
We're talking about sometimes what happens in Egypt, what's happening in Pakistan. Um, these are not two groups. This is one group persecuting an innocent party. So uh, I, I always challenge this sectarian violence line because I think it's very easy. Everyone wants to put out a sense of parity because if you do that, then everyone's conscience is fine. But realistically, in these situations, there is an oppressor and there is an oppressed. Um, and, you know, Mervyn and I have worked on this for a while, this concept of um, focus of, of attacks on Christians. And we're happy to speak about Islamophobia or anti-Semitism. But when you speak about attacks on Christians, we demonstrate them as sporadic, unrelated incidents. So it's the Fulani in one place. It's the Boko Haram here. In actual fact, we did a bit of work for the, the Truro Review, specifically on this saying, this is a phenomenon. And at the time I was saying, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. If you keep dealing with this as sporadic hotspots of illness, it's a very different treatment method to when you're speaking about a global pandemic. And this is a phenomenon that has to be addressed as such, because there is, as, as Andrew rightly says, they are, they are, they are, defined as christians and this is why they're attacked yeah i think i think we um i don't think we should get too hung up on the um on the word martyrdom to be honest with you um you know both andrew and archbishop angelos have, have talked about you know, these things are rarely um are rarely simple um uh, you know the, the the events in manipur in india for example, at the moment, uh, where many killed and churches destroyed, it isn't it isn't a simple um, Christian persecution as such. But nevertheless, Christians have died. So whether, um, uh, but very often it is very specifically. And in that case, you know, why is it that only Christian churches and Christian homes are are destroyed? Of course, there's a, a freedom of religion or belief elements there. But actually, whether we call them martyrs uh, or, or, or whatever we do, I actually once attended, um, and forgive me, but a very boring two-day conference, theological conference in Germany, um, where they discussed uh, the whole purpose of this conference. I don't even know why I went, but anyway, the whole purpose was to define martyrdom. And um, these theologians spent two days. I sat there mostly doing my emails, I must admit. But anyway, <laughs> um, these theologians spent two days um, coming up with a definition of martyrdom. And I looked at it up there on the whiteboard and um, I said to them, well, you do realise that actually um, under that definition, Stephen wouldn't be regarded a martyr. Um, so... You know, two days of work. You know, how, how important is it? The actual definition. I'm. I'm not sure. Um, uh, the the important thing is people are, and people not just Christians, but people of other faiths are dying. You know, you, the Yazidi genocide, the Uyghurs in China. Um, these are people. Whether we call them martyrs for their faith, I don't know. It, it, they're human lives. They are dying, and uh, and it's our responsibility to stand up and speak out against these things. If we cast our minds back to the Libya martyrs, um, actually the, pe the people who defined them as martyrs were the people who killed them because they specifically said, we are killing you because we're Christians and we're sending out a message. And so even as a church, we have a process of receiving saints and martyrs. So they haven't been canonized, but they were instantly received as martyrs because that's what their killers said they were. They were killing them for that faith. And that's why I agree with Mervyn. It's just that the, the situations are sometimes self-defining. But we don't want us to, as, as to be, have our eye taken off the actual what's happening and then focus on definitions. And I, and I take great exception to Mervyn putting the words boring and theological conference in the same sentence. <laughs> just, just for the record. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm grateful you brought up that story because I really wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about it as one of the most striking, shocking examples of kind of modern day martyrdom would be the, the Coptic Christians murdered by ISIS in Libya. Could you share a little bit about how that event, kind of what impact it's had on your church in the years afterwards, Archbishop? 
massive impact on my church, on me personally, on the world. I can't tell you what of an, an outpouring of grief and, and, and solidarity we had directly after that. I remember when it happened, I was called to do one BBC interview. I think it was Al Jazeera English first. And in the space of 24 hours, I had done something like 36 interviews. Um, we had hundreds of emails coming in. I think that crossed a red line that no one was willing to cross um, from a variety of perspectives. The, the inhumaneness of people who were standing, and I, I hate to use the word, but so cowardly fight, hiding their masks, but then you see the courage and the graciousness of people who are kneeling, waiting to be slaughtered, and they have such strength in their eyes, but at the same time such peace. You know, there is no way, when you look at that picture, there is no way 21 men are in that predicament and not a single one of them falters or looks anxious. You, you look at the video and they're looking at each other and they're consoling each other, literally, literally uttering the name of Christ to the very last breath. Um, it was such an incredible witness. I think we, we in our church have the, the Synexarian, which is the book of saints of the day that is read in every liturgical service and we become very desensitized to martyrdoms oh not again someone else got thrown to blind or you know or someone else but having seen this in contemporary media on our devices in the 21st century really changed people's lives and um i i went to the um vatican with his Holiness Pope Toedros to see Pope Francis afterwards. And it was the first time Pope Francis has spoken of the martyrdom uh, of, of uh, the ecumenism of blood. Because it's that martyrdom, that, you know, concept that we all share. So I do think it changed lives. And it was a great witness to Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, and what was even a greater witness was their families. When they spoke of forgiveness, when they spoke of of, of the fact that they were proud that their sons, fathers, uncles were now in the kingdom. It, 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 it was so incredibly impactful at a variety of levels. Um, and they changed my life personally. You know, I, Coptic Christians will always have a, a cross tattooed on their wrists. I never had one. But as a based on that, I thought if they can witness publicly, I'm going to do it as well. And so really the tattoo I've got on my wrist was really in honor of the, of, of the Libya martyrs. And it reminds me daily of, of, of their incredible example. Yeah. You know, I think, um, Archbishop Gallus is saying that, the, you know, the, the response, our response or Christians response to martyrdom is uh, to the martyrdom of other Christians is an incredible, incredible witness. Uh, and, 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 of course, they talk about the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And, and, and it, why is that? It's because of the response. It's two reasons. One is because somebody is actually willing to give their life for their faith, but also the response of others. I remember a um, uh, uh, listening to a sermon, actually, and this was not after the Libyan, the martyrs in Libya, but it was after the the bombings, the Palm Sunday bombings in Egypt. Um, and, and an Egyptian Orthodox priest, I listened to a sermon, and it was on online. Um, and uh, and and this was a week after Palm Sunday, and he was saying, he, he, uh, <clears throat> I paraphrase, but he had three headings. He said, first of all, to, these were to the Islamists who had who had done the bombing. He said, we thank you. We thank you for shortening our journey home. Um, he said that we love you. Uh, we 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 love you despite what you've done, and uh, and certainly said we're praying for you. And um, and and it's that kind of response. And I remember too the response of a talk show host in Indian uh, in in Egypt, rather a um, uh, a Muslim talk show host who, having heard this, he said. How great is this forgiveness they have? These people are made of a different substance. And it's that response uh, that, that draws other people uh, to our faith.
That's right. And, and a little bit of backstory for this, because that's in the most extraordinary event televised by ISIS. Uh, appalling, terrible propaganda own goal, utterly. So the, the, the example that Mervyn's just given of the Muslim talk show host, that was in response not actually to a message given by a bishop, but a phone-in to a Christian television station called Sat7 in the Middle East, where the brother of one of those young men who had been murdered, beheaded, said, our message to the killers, we love you and we forgive you. And you have revealed to us more clearly our heavenly inheritance. Those are my words rather than his, but that's the broad sense of it. So an amazing rise of faith that just completely takes your breath away. But if we just go back a bit, Tim, and ask the question, what is a martyr? Were these people martyrs? Yes, but they were not killed as missionaries. They were Egyptians who had gone to look for work because they were unemployed and they needed work. They were working in Libya and because they were Egyptians and because they came from a Coptic background, they were rounded up by ISIS and they were murdered. But the wonderful backstory, which might help to explain why they were so calm when they faced their execution, is that some of these young men had been amongst those on Mokotan Mountain in, uh, in, in Cairo, which is a, a huge garbage dump. And there's a work of a wonderful Coptic Christian there called Mama Maggie and her team who go up there and they take a football, for example, and they kick a football around and the kids who've got nothing else to do swarm over them and they join and they play the football. And then her team, who are wonderful Christian people, will look out for the potential leader of this group and also for the neediest within these groups. And they will say, well, can we come into your homes and can we do some Bible studies with you? And they will bring up these entire families within the Christian faith. They'll give them medical care. They'll give them schooling. They'll give them an education. They'll take them right through a university career where that's appropriate. But some of these young people who had been who were executed, had been through Mama Maggie's program of care, and they had become Christian leaders, and their faith was firmly rooted in them. So they'd been picked up literally from the ash heap, as it says in the Psalms, and raised up to be the princes among their people, and their faith was extraordinary. One man in that group, uh, a Ghanaian or, or from Chad, we're not quite sure which, uh, was not necessarily a Christian at the time, but when he saw the courage and the witness of those who laid down their lives, he said that their God is my God, and he laid down his life at the same time. So they began as ordinary people, kids from the garbage heap, went out to Libya to get work, and they were then martyred for their faith. So yes, the waters are muddy, and it is complicated in all of this, but they were killed because they were identified as Christians. And my goodness, the way they gave their lives is an inspiration to the world. And the beautiful thing about the church that was built to honor them and dedicated to them, there were 20 of them repatriated, and Matthew was never repatriated because he had no family. And we worked with the authorities, and that church always had an extra place for him. And he was actually repatriated with his brothers. So now he is there in Egypt because there was no one wanting to, uh, to to claim him. So I think that was incredible. And just a reflection of mine is, you know, we, we hear about the three holy youth in the furnace and that there was a fourth amongst them. I am convinced there was a 22nd on that beach. Very good. I'm, I'm convinced there was a 22nd on that beach. Christ was in their midst and that peace can only come from him. And it was just so incredibly inspiring. My, my, my body... It's, I get shivers when I just remember them because it is such a true witness. And as Andrew said, they weren't missionaries. They were just simple people. Who go, they were economic immigrants. They were going to work to support their families. Hmm. And, and they became witnesses. I mean, if you think, you think Samaritan woman, you know, very similar. They went to do something. They left their water pot and they, they told the whole world except it wasn't them who spoke. It was their persecutors. And you're very right, Andrew. It was a huge own goal because this was supposed to intimidate us all into fear. In actual fact, 
and I, I have this <clears throat> on, on, on good authority, having spoken to people in the US, they're saying that a lot of the ISIS funding dropped after that incident. And if you look at their activity, it actually started to dwindle after that. That, that was the breaking point because God does not leave his children unprotected. Hmm. He, is, he doesn't want us to seek vengeance, but God himself did not want this to happen to anybody else in this way. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. And given the kind of as you as you guys have laid out really powerfully and quite movingly the astonishing impact, positive impact of their deaths of their martyrdom. Do you all very much welcome the kind of Pope's initiative to try and gather stories and 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 re shed shed more of a spotlight on on contemporary martyrdom? Do you think that's a really positive idea to say let's let's gather scour the world? And he said very clear, it's not just Catholics; it's going to be people from all denominations. We want to write their stories. We want to honor them. We want to acknowledge them as as martyrs. Do, do you think that's a really positive move? Can I just jump in because I I want I don't want to steal Archbishop's thunder, but um... He was on this before the Pope was, um, and uh, and set up the Contemporary Martyrs Day that we celebrate. In I can never remember. Is it March time or eight January time? February, February, February. Oh, I got, <laughs> got the, I said March and January, but I was wrong. February, <laughs> yeah. Contemporary Martyrs Day, where we come together to remember those. And of course, in Westminster Abbey, we have uh, we have the ten statues of 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 twentieth um, century martyrs, um, such as Oscar Romero and Martin Luther King and Bonhoeffer. Um, so, uh, so yes, it's really important. But it, it's but as long as, of, of course, we must remember their their memory. Of course, that's important. But it it mustn't just be about looking back it must be about looking forward it must be about saying you know when they talk about the holocaust you know um it must never happen again well of course these things will happen again uh but but we need to be prepared to as as i've said before on this stand up and speak out remember but but remember for a reason that we don't want this to happen again one and uh, you know this program cannot um, in my view, be complete without mentioning Shabazz Bhatti. Shabazz Bhatti, um, the Pakistani Christian, a very, very dear friend of mine, and uh, worked with him very closely, who was the first and only, actually, ever um, Christian um, a member of the executive of the of the Pakistan government, um, uh, the the uh, minorities, uh, the minorities minister, and uh, this was a man who spent his life um, and, and in government, not as a Christian, but not just speaking up for for the Christians, but for the Hindus and for Sikhs. He will go and he will be with them, and my last my last ever time with um uh, uh Shabazz Batty was in a hotel room in February 2011 in Washington DC and he asked me to go to his room to pray with him and uh, and Shabazz then showed me his phone and showed me um numerous messages um saying that he was going to be killed and uh, and I said uh, I said Shabazz you know are you frightened he said, "Well, how can I be frightened? I'm doing, uh, you know, I'm I'm only doing what Jesus. If if I'm killed, uh, Jesus died for me," he said, "and I'm I, I have to go on with this work. Of course, I'm not frightened, and I will continue. Nobody will stop me because of my faith in Jesus." The very next month, he was assassinated um simply for doing uh for doing that standing up and speaking out for others and uh, and so so yes let's remember but let's remember and be determined that we will uh, continue to speak out for these atrocities that are going on in the world today i think there's something else that we can add to that and i absolutely agree with you mervin totally agree with you one is that i mean i'm a protestant 
uh, and that's my my faith tradition. But I have come through, particularly through the Coptic Orthodox Church and my connections with Egypt, to increasingly respect and love my brothers and sisters who have different faith traditions and to be hugely enriched by them. And one of the things that, that I think that we particularly here in the UK and in the West need to recover in our faith, and we can get this from uh, the Orthodox, and we can get it from the Catholics too, is a recognition actually that our lives are short, that the word martyr is the same as the word for witness, that we're all called to be witnesses in this world, and we're called not to trust uh, our lives unto death. Uh, you know, we are. how do you overcome? You overcome by the blood of the Lamb. It's a finished work of Jesus, by the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives unto death, being willing to lay down our lives. So the Christian life for us is a life that is laid down. We are called to carry our cross. It doesn't make us miserable. We have the joy of the Lord that is our strength that keeps us going. Uh, that overflows from us. The life of the God, the life of the Lord flows into us and should flow out of us. But we need to recognize that life is short. We are a passing vapor. And actually, when Paul talks about, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, to which we can all say, Amen, we have to read the next bit, which says, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed like him unto his death. There's a real need to recapture the full breadth of that theology in our Protestant lives as well, so that we actually embrace the wider body of Christ and all that they're doing. There's a fascinating tension I've always thought when we start digging into these stories, because we've heard very powerfully from from all of you about the extraordinary witness, the power of Christians not loving their lives so much that they're unwilling to lay them down for the Lord. And we see we see the incredible um, strength that that gives the church. And at the same time, we, we call these things atrocities and we decry them as as horrendous acts of violence that that cannot be tolerated. How, how do we balance that tension between seeing martyrdom as a, both a good thing and also an, a bad thing? How do we tread that line? Well, we don't want to, you know, become kind of a death cult that seeks out martyrdom. And at the same time, we don't want to be so afraid of it that we, as you say, Andrew, we kind of forget the, the command of Jesus to take up our cross. And Tim, I think the, the line I've always taken and that I, I've seen in the church is that we love life. Life is God-given. We love life here, and we love life everlasting. And if something gets in the way of our lives here that leads us to life everlasting, then that's fine. We don't seek death. We don't seek. We never seek death because our lives are God-given, and our lives are those talents that we've been given to work with. And we must serve ourselves and serve the world through them. Um, but if we are seeking to be faithful and godly in this life, then we we, we will continue that journey. Um, and in, in the words of the epistles, if we live with the Lord, if we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or we die, we're his. But our purpose is to live, whether it's here, or eventually in his kingdom. I, th I, I, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, we certainly shouldn't be looking for martyrdom. Because uh, 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 actually, if we're looking for martyrdom, is it actually martyrdom? It could be suicide. Mm. Uh, you know, I think we do have, to, there is a fine line there. And, and, you know, sometimes there is a, it's quite interesting. I always remember a story um, it, from, Kaduna, I think it was in Nigeria a number of years ago, probably twenty years ago now, when there were when there was um, religious rioting in in Kaduna, and there was a, some Christians who were escaping the violence, um, and uh, there was a Christian man in a taxi um, driven by a Muslim, and uh, and they were all they were all Muslims apart from this one Christian man who was a Methodist minister, actually. He wasn't wearing his clerical attire, but they were stopped. Um, they were stopped in a roadblock. 
and um, the, um, uh, the, 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 the terrorists who stopped them said, um, have you got any Christians in this car? Now, um, just put yourself in the place of that minister in the back. First of all, the response of the taxi driver, knowing full well that the um, uh, that, that this minister was in the car, he said, no, there are no Christians. Now, I know, I do know, that if that had been me in the car, I'd been praying like mad that their, their eyes would be blinded and that I would escape freely. Um, and when the taxi driver said that, I would be thanking God. <laughs> that wasn't the response of the Methodist minister. He said, excuse me, I'm a Christian. They took him out and they killed him on the spot. And uh, I've often, you know, that's that's kind of, that, that wasn't suicide, uh, but, but we would all respond differently in those kind of things. He certainly was a martyr, uh, but he didn't necessarily have to put him in that place. I don't know. But um, I, I, I've always wondered what I would do, and I'm pretty sure um, the wimp that I am, um, I'd have been praying and would have been relieved at the taxi driver's response. Hmm. That's really well, interesting. I think there's one thing that we don't account for, Mervyn, that's exactly what you're saying, is that, and that's what I said earlier, with, with, with struggle, with persecution comes grace. And so would those 21 men we just spoke about or with the, the, you know, the minister in the back of the taxi, would they have known themselves to have been courageous and act appropriately? Probably not. But at the right time, God gives that grace because he will never, ever leave us to be tempted beyond our means. That's, that's right. And I remember interviewing, because we only ever interview the survivors, right? We don't interview the martyrs. So, Not on this side of glory anyway. No, that's true. <laughs> I remember being in Nigeria, in Maduguri, which, which became the base of Boko Haram, but it was just before then, where a church had been attacked. And this church, a brethren church, had huge steel gates. And these steel gates were slashed open by cutlasses. You imagine the, the strength and the fury to do that. The church had been burnt down. And the brethren uh, minister, a man called Ibrahim Balami, came out bravely, foolishly, I don't know, to confront this crowd. And they started setting about him with knives. Now, amazingly, this man was spared. But I asked him, well, Ibrahim, what, what went through your mind when this was happening? And he described something which I can only say is, is like what we see on the face of Stephen when he was martyred. His face was like an angel, it says. And Ibrahim Balami, when they are setting about him, this mob who is slashing open steel gates with cutlasses, feels the presence of God all over him, the power and the presence and the grace of God. He came out of it with two minor cuts. It's extraordinary that that happened. And he was able to get away. That's also an extraordinary deliverance. But the point is that the grace and the power of God was with him. We must not fear these things. And it's so easy to listen to, to stories like that, put ourselves in their shoes and identify and, 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 and just quake in our boots, right? I understand, Mervyn, how you would have felt, as you said, you know, if I were in that taxi, oh, God, what, what is going to happen here? Just get me out of here. But actually... We're, we are not called to be fearful. We are called to faith. And I know that's easier said than done. But the great thing is the grace is there when you need it. And it's incredibly powerful. Just one final point before we wrap our conversation up. You mentioned the, the phrase, Archbishop, that, that the Pope has used, the ecumenism of blood. You know, to our to our persecutors, they already consider us all alike. Do you think a renewed focus on martyrdom or potentially, you know, sharing these stories more widely might actually help build Christian unity as we recognize that actually some of our, our small disagreements on tradition and theology, they, they are submerged in the reality that when it comes to our persecutors, we're all Christians and we're all going to die together. So just one story before I answer that. I, I was at the Vatican uh, three months ago, four months ago now, again, with Pope Tawadros to be Pope Francis, and we had taken... Um, relics, uh, items that, that belong to the 21 martyrs to Pope Francis. And he has said that he will set up 
an altar in at the Vatican specifically for the twenty one martyrs who are not who are not Catholic saints, but he already has put them into the book of veneration of the Catholic Orthodox Church by his own decree. So he really does believe in this point. Um, whether we focus on martyrdom, I you see, I, I, I think we have a potential of falling into a state of victimhood if, if we do that. And, I, and one thing that as a Coptic Orthodox Church, I, I look at my church and I'm so incredibly blessed and proud that we've never fo- fallen into that state of victimhood. It, it, it's given us greater resilience and wisdom. And I don't know why. Because other Christian minorities I've seen have fallen into that state of victimhood. And I've said to them, don't do that to yourselves. Don't do that. You know, it's what Andrew said. We're not called to be fearful. You, you, we are more than conquerors. Um, and so I think if we focus too much on the martyrdom, we could fall into that state of victimhood and state of, oh, we are owed something by the world. In actual fact, we just need to witness to our faith and recognize that that witness will sometimes carry an incredible burden and come at an, at an incredible cost. But the words of scripture, again, at that hour, we will be given words and actions and courage and everything that goes with them that no one can counter. So I think rather than focusing on the martyrdom and death, and we, you know, we venerate these these lives we give thanks for them we were inspired by them but as christians we are followers of the word the truth and the life Mm. and so we focus on life not on death death is just a portal and it is a necessity Uh, but we are inspired by their example and their witness yeah, and I think I totally, hundred percent agree with that. Um, I, 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 what I would say, and and and, you know, there is far more to um, persecution than martyrdom, and uh, you know, blood, blood is spilled um, every day, and uh, but it's not always martyrdom. But but what I found when we talk about ecumenism, and you know. I'm a fully paid up Pentecostal. I was brought up in the Pentecostal churches in the 50s and 60s where my dad wouldn't even let me go to the Salvation Army because they weren't Christians. So <laughs> uh, to see me to see me hugging and hanging out with Archbishop Angelos, I think he would have uh, been turning in his grave. But he wouldn't actually because he was a godly man. But that was but but what I found in working in this field has brought me to an understanding that that you know, that, that no water, whatever our Christian faith tradition is, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we must speak out. But what's even more powerful when we talk about witness? What is, in my view, um, one of the greatest witnesses is when we um, stand up and speak out for people of other faiths. Those where you know, I, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father. Um, I, be, I believe that strongly and firmly, but I also believe, when, you know, when the man came to Jesus and said, who's my neighbor? Jesus told the story of somebody who, uh, who uh, the Jews didn't like and didn't get along with. You know, our neighbors are everybody. So when we speak up for um, the Rohingya Muslims, when we speak up for the Uyghurs and for Hindu girls in Pakistan who are married off, as we do that as Christians, we do that because we follow Christ, and that is such a powerful witness. And that's why we at SW um, very, very strongly believe that's the the right way forward. Speak up for those unable to speak for themselves, and that is a powerful Christian witness. And we've got such a wealth of Christian organisations in this country. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of ecumenism internationally. But I, I really, I do believe we have something very special in the UK. Um, it, 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 it's a very special engagement. It, it's genuine. It is reciprocal. And even with the Christian organizations who are at their core Christian, but they serve everyone, like Release, 
like CSW, like Open Doors, like Eighth Church in Need, and, and in our own Ref Semi, and so on and so forth. There is such a, a wealth of Christian witness there in good acts that speak, as Mervyn said, for, for the Rohingya and the Baha'is and, and, the, and, and, and the Yazidis and Uyghurs and everyone else. That is an incredible privilege to us and a gift to us, and it's a credible witness to the world. I think our, our response to a growing awareness of martyrdom, as we've all said, it must not be fear. Our response has to be a faith response to that. And part of it is is to not be made sad by it, but to be made glad by it. And I do not mean in any kind of a ghoulish way to be inspired by these extraordinary stories of faith and courage, to be inspired by the hope of people who are willing to lay down their lives because our lives on this earth are short, but God through his son gives us eternal life, which is just astonishing. So we should be made glad in the whole thing. And our response to it must always be to do as God always urges humanity to do. Choose life in all of this. Choose life so that you and your children might live. Now, we're to be a people full of joy despite everything that happens, in the face of everything that happens, because we've got a God who prepares a banquet for us in the place we least want it, in the presence of our enemies. And he does that to put our enemies to shame and to celebrate that we, through Christ, are called to be children of God, which is what an amazing privilege, which calls us to be witnesses, even if that means laying down our lives. Well, thank you, Andrew. That seems like a really appropriate place to, to draw our conversation to a close. It's been um, a wonderful just to eavesdrop on, on your insight, your wisdom. Um, I hope it's been really encouraging for everyone listening as well. Thank you, Archbishop. Thank you, Mervyn. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week, another episode. Um, but until then, uh, we'll, we'll say goodbye for now. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But if you've enjoyed what you heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. And why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget, you can also subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get each new episode sent automatically to your phone or tablet week by week. If you've got any questions, feedback, or want to suggest a topic we should explore, you can email me at tswyatt at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast.